Hello, everybody. And even if you don't have a body, I'm Layman Pascal, and you're tuning in to an integral stage series called Love the System, devoted to protocols, processes, politics, and systems of interaction. Today, my guest is Mark the Gaff Gaffney to discuss the way he sees democracy, social organization, and planetary politics within the context of his general philosophical and evolutionary vision of Eros. Mark's cognitive grasp of these patterns and his constant call for a more moral, humane, and intimate way of organizing human civilization are things I think we can all appreciate. But I'd probably be remiss if I didn't touch on the fact that Mark is a polarizing figure within many of the communities that track the integral stage. I know people who are strong supporters of him and his work. I also know people who think he epitomizes what's wrong with spiritual leadership and developmental communities in general. And I know people who are vaguely creeped out by something about him and also very intrigued by a lot of other things about him and his work. Although I'd love to sit down with Mark and really explore the complexities of his character and the character of our communities and the differently valenced ways that those bounce off each other for good and ill. And maybe we'll get to have that conversation, but that's not what this interview is about. So whether you think I'm platforming a sociopath, exposing myself to a sorcerer, or touching in with the unique insights of a leading-edge, integrally informed spiritual philosopher, I'd encourage you to put aside your conclusions, whatever they might be, and use this as an opportunity to ponder the very urgent political and technological situation that is currently preventing this planet from solving its biggest problems. Okay. Hi, Mark. <laughs> hey, Layman, it's good to be with you, sir. You too. I've been intrigued to talk with you for a while, uh, partly okay. for your ideas and partly for your passion, partly also, of course, for the sense of exciting controversy that's woven into the community's impression of you sometimes. And when I saw your Independence Day remarks on democracy and governance in the context of planetary politics and Eros, I thought maybe this is a really interesting way into the mystery of whatever Mark Gaffney is. So, so this talk is going to be largely about structural insights into human systems, which is the theme of this particular podcast, and that will afford us some opportunities to explore the larger ethos of cosmorotic humanism that you want to bring forward. We'll touch in on a few other things near the end um, that maybe the community want to hear about, but that's not what the focus is today, and maybe that's a jumping off point for a future conversation. So Sounds like a plan, Layman. We're in. Fantastic. You lead the way. Why don't you start by giving us your sense of, of kind of the overall meta vision for what planetary politics could and should be, and then we'll start digging into some of the specifics around how you feel democracy operates or fails to operate in contemporary contexts. Right. That, that's a, that's a, great, a great way to start the conversation. And maybe we'll just dive in directly. So we're at a moment, you know, we started in 2010. Um, I was uh, delighted and privileged to found with Ken and Ken Wilbur and Sally Kempton and, and some other great folks, the Center for World Spirituality, which we then became, it morphed into the Center for Integral Wisdom. And the reason that's relevant is because, you know, Ken and I in many conversations talked about, and this is really before existential risk was kind of in vogue in a certain sense, right? We both had a deep sense of it. You know, I had borrowed a term from a colleague who had actually come to a bunch of seminars I'd done, we, we talked about the second shock of existence. You know, the first shock of existence is the realization of the dawn human being that death grins at the banquet, not just biological death, but the existential realization of death. And that 
first shock of existence presses humanity into the depths of culture, the depths of interiority. So the second shock of existence is the realization not of the death of the individual human being, but the potential death of humanity. And, and the realization was, you know, that just hit me very strongly. I remember as I was going through the potential existential risk, right? Nick Bostrom's term, you know, in, in the early 2000s, and every one of them was global. I mean, there was nothing that wasn't a global issue. There were no local issues. And, and it became just obvious that without global coherence and global coordination, it was literally layman impossible to engage in any of these issues. And so I tried to think through, because how do we create global coherence? Right? And, and I just became very, very clear that you can only create global coherence if you have an interior shared language, right? I mean, let's say you're working with a couple. I occasionally work with couples. So if a couple doesn't have a shared story, then they can't actually ground their intimacy. If they have a different understanding and fundamental ways of how they understand value, right? More importantly, if they have a different sense of what their story is together, right? Then you actually have an intimacy disorder. And you actually have to kind of create the ground of a shared story. And that's when it first occurred to me that we actually have a global intimacy disorder. Right? At, at the very core, and I'm, I'm actually just finishing a piece of writing now with my, my colleague and, and, and partner, Zach Stein, on the 12 dimensions of the global intimacy disorder. And so the realization was, so we need to create global coherence, right? So just go one more step and maybe this will be helpful. So, so an intimacy disorder, so what does intimacy mean? Let's try and define it for a second. So we've created what we call the intimacy equation. And we're now working on, you know, 500 pages of primary source footnotes across fields to see how this equation applies. So here's the equation. Ready? Here we go. Okay. Equation coming at you in the interior sciences. So intimacy equals shared identity in the context of brackets, relative and brackets otherness. So intimacy equals shared identity in the context of relative otherness times mutuality of recognition times mutuality of pathos. We can feel each other times mutuality of value times mutuality of purpose. So we're now applying that intimacy equation across the board. So let's just look at it for a second, then get to your question. Sure. So if, if I am, if we've got some muons and hadrons, you know, moving around, right? You've got kind of, you're in the sub-subatomic particle world. So subatomic particles, right? You have protons, electrons, neutrons, they come together. There's a recognition between them. There's an allurement between them. There's a mutuality of pathos, right? That's the prehension that Whitehead was referring to, right? There's a, there's a shared value set, meaning they're trying to do something together. There's a set of values at play, right? And they come together and they create an atom, Right, which has a new function, new purpose. So the subatomic particles create a new shared identity called an atom in the context of otherness. There's still a proton, neutron, and electron, whatever, whatever that means, different conversation. And there's mutualities of recognition, pathos, value, and purpose between them. That's true about an organization. It's true about subatomic particles becoming an atom. Right? It's true about a couple. It's true about leagues of nations. Right, it's true in you know in theories of economics, right, in market theory. So that's actually really interesting. So in other words, oh, so if we can't create on the human level, right, a sense of intimacy, meaning shared identity, 
that generates rec mutuality of recognition, mutuality of pathos, mutuality of value, mutuality of purpose, right? Then we're going to break down in the most core way. So now the question is, how do we do that? Okay, so now we've, okay, so we've got our intimacy equation. We've kind of in like one second here, we've kind of alluded to the fact that this works cross-platform. So we're talking about this meta-meta theory that will work cross-platform, but it's a different conversation. I know that you're you're having a different set of conversations on that. Maybe we'll, we'll get to that at a different time. So now, well, so let's just try in our very short time. So how do we address that? How do we actually generate, right, a response to the global intimacy disorder? Now you could say, let's restore intimacy, but that wouldn't be true either because we've never had intimacy at that level. It's not a restorative move, right? It's actually what Gershom Shalom calls Walter Benjamin. It's a utopian move, meaning we have, it's an emergent intimacy. It's an evolutionary intimacy. We have to evolve intimacy, not restore intimacy. We've never had global intimacy before. So how would we do that? So here's the one, the one second, and then and then back to you. And I, I apologize that this took too long, right? But just just to get the pieces on the table. So the way you restore intimacy is you generate, and this is very precise. Again, I'll be very precise. You generate a shared story of value dash inherent value dash rooted in first principles and first values. So when I say a short story of value, I don't mean what Harari calls in chapter two, you know, of the sapiens and Harari is important, not because he's a good thinker. He's not, he's a good populist and he's a lovely man and he's done a, an interesting job, but Harari is important because he's what we call in scholarship, uncontaminated material, meaning he's parroting the postmodern conclusions and taking them as givens. So Harari's view of value is he has three phrases for it, fiction, figment of imagination and social construction of reality. Right. Meaning there's no inherent value and there's no first values and first principles. And there's certainly no narrative. What we're saying is to actually create intimacy, you need a shared story of value rooted in first values and first principles. And the reason that's important, you need both. Habermas, for example, is trying to look, although he doesn't call it that, he's trying to look at first principles. People like like Mary, Mary Evelyn Tucker or Brian Swim are trying to look at a universe story, but it's mythopoetic without inherent value. Brian's doing, Brian wants to be, and I like Brian's a great, but Brian wants to be really sure to stay within the standard narrative, make sure he's being mythopoetic so he's kosher and, and he's done a beautiful job. And so is Habermas, but neither of those are, are sufficient. Story by itself is insufficient. You need a story of inherent value, right? Combined with first principles and first values. Why? Because only those two together create two, two factors, will and allurement. Right. So, for example, when Snowden, right, distinguishes systems theorists between complicated and complex systems, complicated system means they're hyper objects that the parts are dissociated from each other. Therefore, it's fragile. Right. A complex system means, right, Brazilian rainforest, complex system, Ferrari, complicated system, right, world currency, complicated system, right, et cetera. So what's a complex system? So let's add to Snowden. Complex system means there's allurement between the parts. There's an inherent will between the parts to find each other. And there's a set of allure, there's a sense of allurement between the parts. So how do we create allurement and will, whether it's political will or moral will, we create that through a shared story of value rooted in first values and first principles. So George Floyd is tragically murdered. We're in the middle of freaking COVID. The entire liberal community that actually completely subscribes in, in many appropriate and beautiful ways to masks and right, all those important restrictions and lockdowns all floods into the street, into Black Lives 
matter rallies, importantly so, and, and COVID be damned. Why? Because we saw what appears to be a murder. We saw the violation of value in front of us, you know, this kind of horrific, you know, horror, right? And everyone, it was watched millions and millions of times, right? And it generated moral outrage as it should. It generated, and it generated an allurement. We wanted to come together. Political will was generated and a certain amount of action was taken. So, so that's a general sense of what we mean by global intimacy disorder is responded to by a new story of value a new story of value is a new set of coherence between parts, right? In other words, we bring together parts in a new shared identity. That's what a new story is. It's a new configuration of intimacy. It's very beautiful, which brings together the leading edge validated insights of pre-modern, modern, and post-modern into a new integration, new configuration of intimacy, which responds to the crisis of intimacy, last sentence, which has been the movement of evolution all the way up and all the way down. Meaning evolution always is a crisis. The crisis is a crisis of intimacy. The response to the crisis of intimacy is also a restoration of intimacy or the evolution of a new emergent level of intimacy. That's the same thing that happens here. So that was a, a, a big, yeah, I know we did a big tapestry, but I hope that helps. We got now, now we got a big tapestry. Now that's we right. can work. Yeah. Now we got that's, a frame. That's, that's very rich. Uh, I don't know if it's complicated or complex, but we're going to leave that with complex. people. We'll, we'll come back to that after we've gone through some of these specific points. Thank you. Thank you for I, your patience. I, I want to say I like a couple of things about it right off the bat because I periodically try to turn my spiritual practices into algebra. So I love that you guys have an equation around this. And I'm really intrigued by the, the notion of creating something new that has the same form as restoration <laughs> and operates at an international stage. That's really interesting. And so we're going to come back to there after we go through um, what in your article or the segment of your talk that became an article were called the six dimensions of broken democracy. <laughs> right. And so the, the first one that was in there is that voters don't understand the complexity of hyper objects. And I think, right. I think what it's saying there is when we set up our democratic constitutions and procedures, many of which were formed in the 1700s, uh, we were a not facing the sheer complexity of our current international economic and technological realities. And B, our knowledge of the world was very simplistic compared to what we know about how systems and interactions and networks function today. So I think it's probably true that if, if even experts and algorithms can't adequately handle the nuanced complexity of today's world, we should stop pretending that the average voter has a realistic handle on these situations, especially when they're also being lied to and massaged and targeted with disinformation. On the other hand, a lot of people feel perhaps rightly that their inherited human heuristics for intuitive behavior are actually really smart, maybe smarter than they are, and are unconsciously adapted to handle messy complexities very well. So right, maybe right. you could give us a sense of what you mean right. by a hyper object and also how you view the, the limits and the opportunities of human capacity to make complexity workable. No, fantastic. So, so two things. One, this first notion that sense making is you know virtually impossible to do for the voter who needs to make a decision so just a good example of was richard dawkins you know and and you know richard dawkins and i disagree about you know pretty much everything right um you know although once one would accept richard's apotheosis of dna we can go with him any place right and what richard basically does is makes dna god and then he solves the problem and then then everything works. So, 
So actually, once we would once we accept the apotheosis of DNA, we can actually go with Richard. And Richard's a you know a brilliant you know thinker. And he said something very beautiful. He said, you know, around Brexit, he said, why are they asking me to vote on Brexit? I have no idea, right? Of the cascading set. Right here's a very intelligent man, right, who kind of reads carefully and basically says, right, to understand the cascading interplay of economic issues and political issues and Brexit. He said, there's I can't vote on it. I have no idea. And and I think. You know, and you pointed to that, so that's definitely part of what I meant. But here's the second part, and and everything you pointed to, you know, is is, is really, you know, you know, you, stay, you said it better than I did. So beautifully, beautifully stated. And I'm going to get to your heuristic question at the end. But let's go to the second step. And the second step is, which you also pointed towards, which is that we've never had a situation in which the machine intelligence, right, which now is you know, exponentially, literally exponentially, not figuratively exponentially, literally exponentially better than the machine intelligence that beat Boris Kasparov, right? So and when Google Alpha Pro, right, in 2017, played the old version of the machine intelligence that beat Boris Kasparov, you know, back there in deep blue days, right? You know, it, it didn't lose any matches, you know, 137 tied, whatever the amount, right? And so all of that machine intelligence Right, is intentionally arrayed against you beyond the pale of your awareness, seeking to create predictive analysis that's sold to misaligned third parties in order to influence your decisions. Right. So that's not just, you know, I was trying to share this problem with someone, a professor a few days ago, uh, an old good friend. He said, he said, you know, Mark or Mordechai, I called him Mordechai, he said, this is just the same old problem of advertising. No, it's not. It's not a it's not a level playing field with one advertisement going to everyone, right? It's a personalized system, personalization being a euphemism, right, for a very high form of machine intelligence manipulation, whose goal is to actually change how you're going to act without you knowing, right, at a level of knowing, you know, precisely what what in your particular peer group will trigger a particular response. Right. And that's unbelievable. And, and by the way, a peer group, just parentheses, is also a euphemism. We think a peer group means, oh, a bunch of lawyers. Right. What a peer group means in data science, it means a group of people algorithmically generated who respond to a particular sequence of, you know, one font. Let's say there's a particular font with a particular amount of words, which then has a pic picture of a cat, then has a one second interval, you know, then has, you know, a tune. Right. So that. Particular sequences are algorithmically generated split testing happening every second, generating data science peer groups that only the algorithm can generate. And then we then can appeal, right? You know, so for example, should the person without the shirt be a girl or a boy? Well, that depends on your personality profile, right? What are your inclinations? How we're going to actually get you to react to a particular product or a particular political decision. And Brexit, right, knowingly deployed all these tools. So this is not, I'm not, I'm not figuratively connecting things that might be happening. These things are happening, right? So that, that's a very, very big deal. So with that going on in the background, combine that with the hyper object, right? You're in a lot of trouble. So that when that's happening, you can't then rely on the last point that you made, Layman, which is, well, will our kind of natural human capacity, right, to kind of handle and see and evaluate kick in no it's being intentionally deconstructed it's being intentionally deceived and the algorithms are designed 
to manipulate not just my mind, but my feelings. Right? As Jim Wiley said, who was trained by Eric Schmidt, right? who was, as you know, the former CEO of Google, who personally ran the 2012 and 2008 Obama micro-targeting campaign. Jim then went on to work for, guess who? Cambridge Analytica right in 2016. And everyone, of course, blamed the terrible Trump people for doing this terrible micro-targeting. But Jim was trained by Eric Schmidt in the Obama campaign. And this is standard practice. And when Jim explained right, what was happening, he said, we're actually targeting your feelings, your vulnerabilities. Right. So in other words, the notion that you go inside and you kind of feel but that's the old liberal order. We're going to our consumer and our voter decisions are based on our feelings. When our feelings are when we can hack the life system and feelings can be reduced inappropriately. But feelings do have a vessel dimension, not just light right to algorithms. And you can then manipulate those feelings. So that, that default mode that we always relied on right, actually is inaccurate. So it actually makes no sense in that situation for people to vote. Now, there are solutions. In other words, we could have liquid democracy, for example, right, which Jim Rutt has kind of appropriately championed, where we actually have people voting for us, or we could have certain educational processes we go through. It doesn't mean we abandon voting. It means we up-level voting, right, to require a kind of, you know, you know, as Jefferson and Washington famously talked about, right, we need to train people in the science of government. That's what the founding fathers envisioned. And, and we need to actually engage in generating kind of a new training in the science of government. But that's okay for number one. I think we got a, a sense of it. Is that yeah, fair? Yep, yeah, that's a fair and that's a good sense. Um, okay. The second one, uh, the key issues of the day are not being voted on. So to me, that brings up the sense. I mean, there's a complaint that democracy is confined to particular domains. Wilhelm <laughs> Reich campaigned for democracy in the workplace 100 years ago, and right. it's still barely been tried. So there's lots of areas like work that are not democratic, and there's lots of issues affecting everyone that don't enter into the arena of public decision making. None of us voted on having massive industrial fish boats pushing ocean species to the brink of extinction right. and filling the world with nets. That was not on the ballot. None of right. us voted on whether to export our vaccine supply lines to other countries or have these algorithms hacking our subconscious. So we yeah, have to yeah, ask ourselves, yeah. like, what good is democracy if it doesn't even have its hands on most of the levers? Right. So how big an issue is this and what could we possibly do about it, Mordecai? We have to give you a Hebrew name, right? Um, that's, that's very sweet. Um, so Layman, again, you're, you're articulating it beautifully. Right? So the second variable who, you know, is, is, is as you completely correctly say that we listed there was, right, who votes for the key things? And let's just, let's just kind of nail it, right? Who voted for Google, right? Who voted for the Google business model? Right. You know, who is voting for and this is really important. What's driving now, let's say, the new advances in the last half a year. Right. In AI. And what's happening in AI is there's incremental advances in AI's capacity. Right. One incremental advance, not such a big deal. Right. But then there's 10 over five years. And now we have a, a changed game. Now, who's tracking that? So that's being driven essentially by entrepreneurship right, and research, which are married, right, and which are driven essentially by a, you know, win-lose, rivals conflict governed by win-lose metrics, what we called, you know, back in 2014, when we did the success summit, we called it success 2.0, right? In other words, it's a, it's a rivals conflict, win-lose metric story. 
and all of our major decisions are being made there. And that's kind of shocking, right? I mean, when, when C.S. Lewis in a book called The Abolition of Man that Zach and I are actually now writing on, right? It's very interesting. So C.S. Lewis talks about the fear of the conditioners, right? Generating new scientific methods in an omnicompetent state, right? And Lewis got a lot of it right. And he was talking about Skinner particularly, but of course the issue is not the omnicompetent state. The issue is the omnicompetent private set of techplex, right? Leaders, what Zach and I are calling techno-feudalism. It's our name for it. It's the name of actually, you know, one of the new books, right? You know, essentially this is a group of a couple of hundred people. I mean, literally max, that's a high number, right? Who are actually running, right? The major structures of the techplex as an omnicompetent private corporation that is making all of the decisions that affect us. And I'll just give you one example. Remember Google Glass back in 2014? So it didn't go well, right? And it was a, there was a, it's a very interesting story to kind of track that. So, you know, essentially high tech is coming for your face in the next two, three years. That's where it's going. They're trying to go back to in five or six different ways to kind of re-extend ubiquitous computing and the internet of things, right? And to kind of come back to the face because of course the, the ostensible problem from a purely kind of limited perspective is well, you want your hands free and you want easy access to everything. So let's solve that, you know, economically by creating some new version of Google Glass, okay? So let's take that as a given. But who's considering the implications of that socially, existentially, spiritually, right? You know, morally, right? Economically, no one. I mean, it's actually shocking. So in other words, and, you know, there's something called the network effect, right? Which means that when you impose something on the system like Facebook, right? Essentially, everyone has to participate. It's an effective monopoly, right? Which, which operates in a different way than the classical rules of monopoly. Therefore, it's unprecedented and therefore it's not legislated legally, right? And so, 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 so high tech's coming for your face. No one's in the conversation. It's gonna have massive, 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 right? Ruptures, right? In, in the social space and implications that are almost beyond imagination. When Mark Zuckerberg says two weeks ago, right? He's putting all his energy into kind of versions of VR, you know, the metaverse, right? And what's his intention there? His intention is quite clear. Immersive experiences are enormously important on, on multiple levels and they can be used in enormously important and positive ways. But actually he's looking at the metaverse in a completely different way, which is going to change our entire experience of what it means to be a human being. And there's no discussion for not forget about voting. There's no conversation. Right? It's being it's been completely hijacked right, by an omnicompetent, Lewis's phrase, but not state, but very small group of techno-feudalists, most of them who believe in a kind of cyber totalism, right, who are making decisions based on, you know, data scientists who they've essentially hijacked. And at a, at a moment of existential risk, there's about 10,000 leading data scientists in the world who all work for the techno-feudalists because each of those data scientists has been essentially ensnared by, you know, 600, 700, $800,000 salaries and great houses and, you know, good status in the rivals conflict win lose metrics. So at a time when we need those data scientists desperately in key domains, we've actually drained them. The amount of energy that went into in 2006, right? You know, operationalizing the Facebook news feed. Imagine that went into Right, responding to catastrophic and existential risk. So that's a, a sense of the second issue. Who voted for this? No one. Okay, okay that's two. <laughs> that's two. 
the third one, if I'm remembering correctly, is uh, we're voting inside nation states and the issues that are bedeviling us are international. And that's, uh, right. you know, I've had a couple of discussions with John Bunsell, the founder of Simple, trying to bring pressure to the international context. Yeah. And that's helped me take this issue really seriously. So I guess that's the great. question is, you know, how should we or could we respond to planetary level situations? A, without imposing excessive global governance, and B, uh, you know, kicking decisions down to the lowest level at which they can be solved so that top-level decision-making is left to handle issues that are specifically international, because people have a really, a really strong gut reaction against the possibility of global governance. Right, right, so right. We, no, want no, to, no. we want to be able to say to them, hey, it's not going to be for things you can decide in your local city council. But right. there are some things that have to be held at that level. How do how do we do that? But that that's really that layman. That's really really important. And um, and I, I you know I might make up a Hebrew name for you along the way, right? We got to think about that. But, but that's a good one. But so so let's think about this for a second, right? And we already said in the beginning that all the core forms of catastrophic and existential risk require global coordination and global coherence. We've already established kind of in our kind of opening conversation that you can only create global coherence by creating a new emergent order that responds to the global intimacy disorder. And in the structure that we laid out, that would be a new story of value, comma, inherent value, comma, rooted in first values and first principles. Let's put that back on the table. And from that place, look at this issue. So take an issue like data and take an issue like sexual slavery. Those are two really good issues right? Sexual slavery and labor slavery, right? We have, you know, we have five, six times more slaves in the world, you know, today than we did when Lincoln, right, emancipated the slaves. And, you know, we grew up, right? And I, I remember being in, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade history and the excitement of, you know, Lincoln's emancipation and, you know, amazing grace, what happened, you know, earlier, you know, Wilberforce, right? That gorgeous story in, in England. And we kind of think we got that one handled. We don't. Right. I mean, the, the, the level of slavery in the world today is shocking. Slavery cannot be dealt with in any intelligent form. You know, and in 2006, after I went through a personal tragedy, you know, I actually thought maybe I would spend the rest of my life working on this issue. And I failed. You know, I, I failed to actually be able to kind of, you know, muster sufficient influence to actually directly affect policy. And so I realized that's not the right way to go, but I, but I spend a lot of time in the issue and I've remained in the issue. It's, it's, it's beyond important. But one of the issues is you can't solve it. That's when I first started thinking about this. You can't solve it without, you know, parties on board from, you need a global solution, right? To sexual and labor slavery, because it's a complete interconnected hyper object that can't be dealt with without going all the way up and all the way down. And clearly the issue of data, Right, because of multipolar traps and the tragedy of the commons, right? You know, right. So and so everyone's doing in the race to the bottom. You can't deal with data, right, unless you deal with it in an international right form with global coherence. Can't be done. Now, in order to do that, right, we've got to turn to emergence theory. Right. And so emergence yeah. theory, right, you remember, um, you remember um, where should we where should we just go? Just very briefly, um. Where should we go, my friend? We should go to 1954. Turing's about to pass away. A tragic story, right? Turing, you know, the great code cracker has been, you know, arrested for, you know, homosexuality in Great Britain. He's sentenced to have hormone therapy. Terrible story, right? And it's unclear what happened, but in one of the stories, he committed suicide. 
but you know, he died then. And so right before then, and Turing is one of my great heroes. Turing is just an incredible figure. I'm just a, a beautiful man, you know, from, you know, and, you know, he, you know, he, he, he created so much of the modern world. But so Turing writes an essay called Morphogenesis, right? And in Morphogenesis, he essentially, give or take, right, lays down the, the kind of tracks for understanding, you know, the self-organizing universe. Right. What does it mean that reality self-organizes? And, you know, and later on, you know, Evelyn Fox, right, and um, what's his name, the second researcher at Columbia, right, they get together and they kind of challenge the, the general understanding of slime molds. And they realize that slime molds are not run by kind of a general pacer cell when slime molds come apart and come back together, but actually slime molds are self-organizing. Okay. Now, how does slime molds self-organize? That's very interesting. How, how does that happen? Right. So it turns out that Evelyn Keller Fox goes back to morphogenesis, right? She realizes, oh, how are they self-organizing? There's elemental simple principles, right? That keep getting repeated, repeated, repeated exponentially that then create complexity. That's really interesting, right? Now, when I talk about first principles and first values, I'm coming out of that dimension of com complexity theory. That simple first principles generate complexity, which goes to one of the things we talked about later in this article, which is in order for democracy to work, we need a universal grammar of value rooted in simple first values and first principles. If you don't have those at play, you can't create global coherence. And so we need to have those at play again. And they're not at play. Do you, do you remember our friend Richard Nixon, right? <laughs> right, 1960. So here's something I, you may know this, Layman. It's really interesting. Richard Nixon and John Kennedy were very good friends. Doesn't that make, doesn't that make you happy? This makes me happy, right? It's a, it's a good world. They met in a 1947 train ride, you know, where they kind of bumped together, became good friends. They were friends during all their years in the Senate, right? Richard Nixon wrote a very beautiful letter to Jackie when, 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 when Kennedy was killed. But no, and even they, they ran that fierce campaign against each other in 1960, which was, I'm talking about stolen elections, right? It was a complicated story. Joseph Kennedy was not a fair player, right? Nonetheless, they had a deep friendship. They had a deep common set of values that they... They didn't care about postmodernism. They experienced those as intrinsic values. And that allowed for an intimacy, right? So in order to actually have a, a, a world in which, right, we can actually, democracy works, right? We need democracies to be functioning with each other, right? Emergent out of a universal grammar of value and then functioning also in collectives, which is not precisely global governance, but at least global confederation. Maybe I'll bring one last thing on the table. Bostrone, right? And Bostrone's, you know, Bostrone's made huge contributions to this field. I think Bostrone's, you know, uneven, meaning, Nick, and if you're listening, I apologize. Um, I mean, sweetly, but insincerely, right? You say unbelievably idiotic things about spirit, right? You're so you're uneven and unbelievably brilliant things, right, about your field, right? You know, and your set of fields. So Bostrone writes this brilliant essay in 2019 on the vulnerability hypothesis. And he talks about what happens if you take a black ball out of an urn, essentially meaning existential risk, right? It's not a gray ball or a white ball, it's a black ball. And, you know, a black ball would mean kind of a, a relatively easy to construct, you know, mass destruction weapon that didn't require enriched uranium and a nation state to generate it, et cetera. And we shouldn't even talk too much about it, right? I mean, it's, right? So, so Bostrom says, how do we solve for that? He says, well, get rid of the bad people. That won't work. Stop technology. That's not going to work. Well, that's one and two. Four would be global governance. Three is worldwide surveillance. And this thing that Shoshana Zuboff doesn't understand in surveillance capitalism, and 
it's a very important book and lots of problems with it, but, but actually we may need worldwide surveillance to respond to the black ball out of the urn. The problem is not worldwide surveillance. The problem is worldwide surveillance without first values and first principles, right? So we actually may need not quite global governance, right? We, we understand the fear of that, but actually a kind of global confederation, right? Of shared, not just interest, shared value, right? Which then generates an inability to deal with sexual slavery and who owns the data, right? Two issues that, for example, obviously climate and the list goes on and on, you can't even begin to touch without global coherence. So that's three. Yay. <laughs> well done, good rant. Okay, we're um, good. I'm going to couple the next two together because the next two are the preposterous nature of voting and the win-lose structure of democracy. And these are key issues for me because I'm always looking at the structural factors and how we come together to make collective decisions, which lead those decisions to be of a fairly low quality. Right. right. We've got a ridiculous situation set up where for some reason, the most money usually wins elections because our brains are easy to hack by businesses and algorithms and tactical politicians. We're sort of inside a general civilization sphere of black magic or something like that. And it seems implausible that we could quickly educate people up to a level of social sophistication in which they're not falling for simple neurosocial hacking. And then right. beyond that, there's real questions about the capacity of our voting procedures, right? right. We, we have secret ballot, which is nice, but uh, winning a plurality or even a simple majority can still leave half the country disagreeing with the so-called will of the people. Right. So we always right. seem to be recapitulating a team sport dualism on every social issue that comes up. So, you know, from your point of view, Mark, why isn't voting working? And what openings do you see that could bring about a transformation in how we go about making collective decisions? Fantastic. Those are like brilliant inquiries and thank you. So let's, let's, let's see if we can tease them apart a little bit, if we can for a second. Okay. So let's, let's, bracket the preposterous nature of voting, which is kind of its own issue. And we'll talk about that in a second. We've actually alluded to it before when we talked about, you know, Eric Schmidt and micro-targeting, you know, and Jim Wiley, kind of Schmidt's kind of lieutenant who then did Cambridge Analytica, but we'll return to that. Let's look at that, you know, where you started the second issue, which is kind of the win-lose structure of voting. So here I just want to invoke my dear, dear friend and, you know, beloved evolutionary partner and colleague, Barbara Marks Hubbard, you know, um, who, who passed you know, and and I and we miss her dearly. You know, and she was, you know, she was a very close friend of mine, also of my my you know dear friend Daniel Schmachtenberger, and we spent a lot of time talking. You know, what what Barbara called it's her term, or she may have borrowed it, but I heard it from her. You know, synergistic democracy. So I want to credit her with that term, and I think one of the things that we forget to do a little bit in the millennial world is people forget to credit people. So I want to credit and honor Barbara with that. You know, it's a very good term. You know, and of course, you know, let's unpack you know, the problem first, you know, when we did this 2014 conference on success 3.0, what we basically said is, is that this win-lose, this rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose, you know, metrics is a form of what we call pseudo-eros, right? You know, there's a field of eros. Eros is a much bigger conversation. Everything we're talking about, and the, when we get to the solutions, we start talking about what we call the politics of eros. And that's a, we'd have to kind of create an equation for eros and what does eros mean and how does it relate to intimacy? And we'll, we'll get to all that, maybe not today. But for now, let's just say that when you don't have eros, you have pseudo eros. Reality doesn't tolerate a vacuum, right? So in the emptiness, you can't hold the emptiness. 
You don't have a genuine story of value, you create a pseudo story. You don't have genuine value, right? You create pseudo value. You don't have, let's say, for, I just give you give one example. You don't have a genuine sexual narrative that meets our experience of sexuality. So then you create pseudo sexual narratives, what Ann Applebaum just called this week in the Atlantic, the new Puritans, right? That was her article, you know, and it was in the liberal Atlantic, interestingly enough. So when you don't have genuine eros, you always have pseudo eros. And pseudo eros, you know, looks like eros, but it's not, right? And, and that's really, really important. So what happens is when you don't have a genuine shared story of value, you're not going to be without a story, right? Another story is going to step in. So what's stepped in is basically a success story, right? A romantic story and a hero's journey. Those are the three stories and how each one of those works is a different conversation. But let's just say for now, the success story is a form of pseudo eros and therefore it's very, very powerful. Now, given that, right, what does that mean? So that, that means as follows, because the win-lose metrics, right, forms your very identity. If you're not successful, Right, in a particular way, you've succeeded in a certain kind of commodification in production, right, which allows you to succeed in the rivals conflict, which is governed by the win-lose metrics. You don't exist. That's identity. That's a failure of your very identity. We kill for identity. Now, so what happens? What happens is you create polarization. Polarization means you're out of the Tao. You're out of the field of value. When you're in the Tao, when you're in the field of value, right, then opposing values become paradoxical because those values are expressions of the Tao. They're expressions of the field. When you've stepped out of the field or you think you've stepped out of the field, you actually can't step out of the field. But when you have an experience, you've stepped out of the field. So what happens is you gravitate towards a value, but that value becomes your pseudo eros. So you're pro-life or you're pro-choice. Really? All the pro-life people against choice, have they actually thrown choice out as a value? That's absurd. All the pro-choice people against life? It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a completely absurd, right, kind of framing of the situation. But when you've stepped out of the field of value, then you basically take a value, you make it not your eros, but your pseudo eros. You, you decontextualize the value from the larger field and from its natural dialectical tension with other values, you transform that value into a pseudo erotic absolute, and then you have polarization. So polarization always emerges from stepping out of the field of value, or at least having experience of stepping out of the field of value. That's what creates right, the win-lose structure, right? So in other words, the way voting operates today is essentially it's a win-lose game, right? What you try and do is you want something to pass, you marshal all of your energy, all of your lobbying, all of your support, all of your money, you try and destroy the other side and pass your bill which means you've got now 50% of the country, let's say in America, who's furious. Now, as long as you were in a shared field of value, you could kind of be okay with that. We're all watching Walter Cronkite. There's no newsfeed where we're all seeing different information. So we have a shared experience. We have a shared field of value. We're gonna still kind of hold you in our minds because we don't wanna to create too intense polarization. And we have, we have a kind of shared sense of the world. But now we're in this new kind of digital hyper mode in which we don't share, see the same things in the newsfeed. We have no common experiences. We therefore interpret reality completely differently. We're not in a shared field of value. There's no Nixon and Kennedy who are meeting behind the scenes. So now we've got just a win-lose metrics voting game. Voting becomes a weapon. We've weaponized voting, right, in, you know, as an expression of the win-lose metrics. So we move to radical polarization, which in the end will break us apart.
which is, you know, Ben Shapiro actually said a few days ago, post-California, you know, and Ben is a, um, a kind of, um, you know, slick version of certain expressions of the right and, and an intelligent version. You know, Ben's an intelligent version. He has a, a lot of intelligent things to say, but Ben said, you know, quite shockingly, you know, and, you know, let's just start talking about secession. Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's a, that's a wow. That's a, I mean, to have someone, can you imagine layman, someone would say that 20 years ago, let's just talk talking about secession and it barely raised an eyebrow. So that's the level of polarization. So, so we need to deal with that. It's just, if we have time, let's just do the second thing you raised very briefly, the preposterous nature of voting, just very briefly. Yeah, this is a much we okay? Yeah, yeah, go. Okay, so there's a much bigger topic. Let's just look at it briefly because it's really important, right? So, and we've really covered this already, but let's just apply it here. In other words, 2010, Facebook does a split test that for whatever reason they release. And the split test was with 61 million voters, right? And let's see, can we influence whether they're going to vote or not vote? Now, interesting, people like Alex Pentland in his book, Social Physics, 2014, MIT Media Lab, he reports on this exultantly. Isn't this interesting how this worked? So he's a classical kind of, you know, naive structured backbone of techno feudalism and how the MIT Media Lab functions in that way. Paradiso and Pentland is a whole other conversation, but let's bracket that for a second. But, but they report that study and, and Facebook released it. But what that study actually tells you is something which is shocking, right? which is that actually you can, Facebook can swing an election easily because what they do is they, they tried with text, showing people text, encouraging them to vote didn't work, but showing people faces of their Facebook friends who did vote did have a statistically significant impact in particular districts on who voted. Now, we have to understand when people say to me, oh, this stuff doesn't affect me. No, no. The way you create digital dictatorship is not whether it causes you to buy something or not. You create digital dictatorship by creating peer groups that create statistically significant shifts, right, in how many people vote or don't vote in micro-targeted areas. That, that changes elections. That makes elections actually irrelevant, right? In other words, because if you have, as, as we do today, if Obama had all the, he had profiles on all the wavering voters in America, not, not based on conspiracy theorists, based on the best academic research, right? That's reported on, that's been reported by multiple serious scholars, right? So he micro-targets those people, right? And let's say he gets some of them to vote. And then another area, he gets people not to vote. And you get just enough, one or 2%, 3%, game over, right? We're, we're no longer talking about democracy as we understand it in any way. So voting, the classical notion of voting becomes absurd. Right. The notion that first off, voting is a fair game in which you kind of find your internal feeling, you kind of go with it. That's not a game anymore. Your feelings being completely manipulated, one. But two, right, through statistically significant movements and micro-targeting, by split testing, we change the result of an election with no one ever knowing. Right? Who's checking this information? No one. We have no access to it. So that's pretty significant. That's a, that by itself, and, and, and Facebook releases that study. And again, this is not Cambridge Analytica. And, and maybe it's the last sentence in this, in, in the big Cambridge Analytica scandal, and I guess I'm assuming that listeners know what I'm talking about, which I shouldn't, but this Cambridge Analytica scandal in which the Trump campaign 
right? Hired Cambridge Analytica, which was using data from Facebook to micro-target voters on the favor of Trump in the 2016 election, which everyone was furious about and kind of castigated Trump. Now, there's a lot of things to castigate Trump for, but, but this was not one of them, meaning, meaning it wasn't a uniquely Trump issue. This was Obama's move. This is a straight Obama micro-targeting move, micro-targeting move, you know, engineered by Eric Schmidt in 2008 and in 2012, personally overseen and barely got reported, barely got reported. That, that's, that's a big deal. That's in the very structure of voting. So that's number five. Okay. These, uh, you know, these big structures, these information systems and analysis yeah. systems that are going on everywhere. It's very strange because one of the reasons it doesn't get reported uh, is simply because people have a hard time making meaning out of it. it, it it's such an abstract, strange thing. They don't know how to feel about it. And I think a lot of the people who indulge in the uh, less well-informed version of conspiracy theory are accurately sensing what's going on. They just don't have the ideation and the articulation to describe what the problem is, but they're aware there's a big problem and it's roughly in a certain area. <laughs> no, no, that you're, you're absolutely right, Layman. And, 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 you know, and Zach and I hopefully will be putting out a paper on conspiracy theory. But that's a very I mean, that that's a separate dialogue by itself. Yeah. But you, you hit something, you know, as you have in everything you've said. You you each time you've hit something on the nail, right? I think maybe it's a nail on the head or hit something somewhere, right? Whatever the hammer on the nail. Okay. Well, whatever that idiom <laughs> is, something, however that works, right? But 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 you're correct. In other words, the conspiracy theory people, right, sense that there's something missing driving the narrative here. That, that actually not all the cards are on the table, right? that there's too many false flags, that I'm missing information, right? that I can't trust right? the, the classical sources of information. You know, I mean, we're told you know, by every major media news outlet today, outlet today, this is just a good example, that it's been decided that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide in prison. Now, who actually thinks that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide in prison? Almost no one because there's so much fact available, right? That, that, right? And yet all the classical major media outlets keep repeating that Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide in prison. So what happens is there's this, you know, that old phrase, cognitive dissonance, right? And so we stop trusting, we stop believing. And the conspiracy theorists have this general sense, right? That there's a thread in the plot line here that we're missing. Then, right? The old noble lie of propaganda doesn't work anymore because we have a new information system. So there's enough anomalies, right? You know, floating through the system. And then what conspiracy theorists often do is they put them together in an inappropriate way, right? But I mean, a good example is voting, right? I mean, was this election stolen? Well, let's take a look. Well, I don't think so, right? But you got to ask yourself two questions, right? If you thought that Trump was an existential threat to the future of the world, Right, and you had the opportunity to steal the election. What should you do? Don't answer that question. Okay, that's one. Right, that that's an interesting thought experiment. Right, but here's the second thing. Right, and and I don't think the election was stolen. To be clear, right, but right, when you've got newscaster after newscaster saying there's no real issues with election regularities, that's just not true. There's an entire sets of data, right, which are shocking. And I, I don't want to take up our time because it's not our agreed upon topic, but we could spend a, a separate conversation on, right, fraudulent elections, right, and it's shocking. So what happens is we have to actually in our mainstream legacy media, I'd say, yeah, there are real problems with elections. 
there is real problems with tallies of votes and those things are real so then when the mainstream legacy liberal media says no that those aren't problems at all then you've got an enormous amount of information go to even a mainstream right-wing outlet like prager university right which puts out five minute videos right you know my old colleague right i haven't spoken to him in many many years dennis prager right who created prager university you know jordan peterson the whole gang they're all doing quite good work there within their realm right you know expressing that position and just look at their videos just do the simplest piece of research on fraudulent elections by the most credible people around and compare that to what rachel Maddow says right or about you know what a classical and the gap is so shocking so the conspiracy theorist person says why are they lying to me we do a much better job to realize we can't do the noble lie anymore there's too many anomalies we actually have to be more honest and our communication and educate the general public, right? And demand a higher level of citizenry and create mechanisms to make that possible, which we can. We've got to make it an absolute priority, right? To actually engage citizens in the science of government. And that's just, that's a huge deal. We can't, we can't rely on the noble lie. Or we can't use propaganda. So that's a really good example, right? So yeah, I think we have yeah. one more, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's come back around to the sixth and uh, a final point of these broken democracy Please. issues um synergistic democracy only works with a shared grammar of evolving values we've touched this a little bit already but the big one what what do these mean what the heck is synergistic democracy what is a shared grammar and what are these evolving values that's all right that's all right right so that's another <laughs> six seven hours but let's just do it very very briefly so one synergistic democracy means synergy right right there's a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts so what we actually begin to do is we begin as a democracy to inhabit each other's values. So let's take an issue like vaccines, right? How do we inhabit each other's values around vaccines? How do we disambiguate the propaganda and actually feel into what's actually happening here? What are the different values at play? How do we not demonize each side? Bracket vaccines for a second. Just take any issue at play. What are, what are the best values on each side? What are the most important validated insights on each side? And how do we inhabit each other's values? So I'll just give you an example. We, we used it before, but it's applicable. Take something like abortion. If you look at the forces in the Talmudic tradition, it's very interesting, in the third century, and then in the, the scholarly tradition from the third century till the 21st century, there's a 1700-year beautiful scholarly tradition, which I've spent a lot of time in on this particular issue. And you'll see that you don't have a pro-life, pro-choice, right, dichotomy. Actually, the legal theorists, who are also value theorists, inhabit both values. The value of choice, right, the autonomy of a woman over her body, the value of life, and actually create gorgeous synergistic positions on how we actually engage in abortion. That's obviously a much, much bigger topic, but it's, there's no pro-life, pro-choice split because the legal theorists are value theorists. They're in the field of value and we're inhabiting both values. So if basically, you know, we have this kind of, you know, left, right polarity, let's, what are the values of the left that the right can inhabit, right? What are the values of the right that the left can inhabit? Right? What are and, and how do we then create a shared field of value, which we actually synergize so that we actually we're, we're creating solutions that actually are synergistic. And it's absurd not to because the result is Ben Shapiro suggesting friendly secession. And we're, 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 we're I mean, 
the level at which things are exponentially changing, that thing which sounds completely absurd today, couldn't have been said 10 years ago, which means that in 10 years from now, it's gonna be a real possibility. So synergistic democracy means, how do we actually create a shared field of value based on a universal grammar of evolving value? Now, what does that mean? Okay, your second question. So this is a bigger conversation, right? But let me just say it in a word. So, Star Wars, you know, episode four, right? Which is, uh, I think the first movie, right? So we're at the end of the movie, right? Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill's young, right? Princess Leia, right? We got, you know, um, um, what's his name? Harrison Ford decides to join the battle. So we're really upset. We're really, you know, to back up Luke, right? And, and the conversation is, this is the Death Star. We're gonna find out in a later, you know, Star Wars episode, how they got the plans for the Death Star, which is quite interesting, but that's not our topic now, right? And so they're going for the Death Star, but, but a few fighter crafts can't take down the Death Star. That's clear. The Death Star is culture, right? And so we understand that you've got to score a direct hit. A direct hit hits there, which cascades there, which moves there and blows up the Death Star. So we need to score a direct hit in terms of value. How do we actually reclaim intrinsic value? I'm not going to go into that conversation now. You know, Zach and I are spending, you know, um, an enormous amount of time on it now, right? To actually, you know, re-emerge re a new theory of value that actually is not, you know, so complex you can't follow. It's actually second simplicity. That's a different conversation. Let's do a whole conversation on that. But at the core is that value is real and evolving. That both of those are true. Right, that, that values that when we say eternal values, we don't mean unchanging values. We mean eternal, they're grounded in eternity. They're beneath time and beneath space, and yet they're evolving. So we, that's a big conversation, evolving value. But, but we need a, a universal gram of value, which is not like Aquinas' natural law, right? And that, which C.S. Lewis adopted, which is why C.S. Lewis got rejected, right? He was using an old natural law theory that's been correctly critiqued. Right, just like perennial philosophy has been correctly critiqued. Jorge Ferrer, right, actually launched some legitimate and important critiques, right, of, of perennial philosophy that were important that can be responded to, but they got to be responded to through a new theory of value. So you can't have any of these conversations without understanding value. And that's a completely separate conversation, which I'm delighted to have. I want to just honor the structure of kind of our covenant in the time. But, but let's just say if we don't have a universal grammar of value, and we don't solve the value problem, solving the value problem is a direct hit. It actually allows you to blow up the Death Star. If we can actually reclaim, right, right, a, a notion of value that works, that's a very big deal, and value that works all the way up and all the way down the evolutionary chain. And that's, is there intrinsic value, right, that actually is not just a human creation, that actually is intrinsic to cosmos? I believe the answer is there is, unquestionably, but we can't, none of the old ways of doing that work. Right? Natural law theory has gotten decimated, Right, you know, Amy Barrett is actually operating in that, you know, natural law theory world, which is why, as is Bill Barr, that's actually what they're championing. They're not a bunch of crazies. They're actually operating within a natural law theory, but they haven't actually taken into account the postmodern critiques of natural law, which we need to take into account. There's seven or eight critiques. They're all true but partial. Right. We need to take those into account and reconstruct value. That's a different conversation. That's what I'm referring to here. Okay. I wow, we did a lot. Yes, yeah, we've covered we're covering a lot of ground here, which I appreciate. I'm I'm thinking about the you know the role that value plays in generating systems. Uh, something that comes to my mind, which is ridiculous, but I think of it all the time. 
which is why why have I not what protects the mayor of my city from being killed by me? The the basic thing is I don't want to. <laughs> if I really wanted to, I could. So the first line of immediate right. defense is that people generally don't want to do certain things and want to do some other things. And that's that absolutely essential. But getting to this place where we have the right values and share these values, I mean, it seems like there's a couple hey, man, of different you just, options. You, just, you, know, it's, you just hit the ball out of the park again. And, and, and let's just take your mayor example. That's, okay, that's so important. You're absolutely right. In other words, the only way to transform, and this is this is the major subject of this book that Zach and I are working on right now, that the only way to transform a complicated system into a complex system and to guide exponential right emergence, right, is not to regulate it, although sometimes regulation has as value, right, as it were, but to actually self-organize it. Now, again, let's go back to the complexity theory and let's go back to morphogenesis and Turing right you know and 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 you know the research done on slime molds in other words the way this works is is that simple first values and first principles guide the emergence of the system now what that means is that let's say you've got lots of non-state rogue actors who have access to all sorts of technologies you can't monitor all of them even with a global surveillance system it's going to be hard so you need them to be part of a grammar of value, right? Meaning the same way that Lehman, right, is not going to, you know, assassinate the mayor of Detroit or wherever he happens to live, right, somewhere in Michigan, right, because he's held in an inherent structure of value, which self-organizes, repeats itself exponentially, and includes the citizenry. Once you deconstruct that, you're in very big trouble. And this is the Chekhov point. Right. If you have a gun in the first scene, it's going to go off in the third scene. So if you deconstruct value, right, really not even in postmodernity, as Habermas pointed out, you know, postmodernity is basically, you know, you know, modernity, you know, you know, on steroids, right? Hypermodernity, right? And Zach actually pointed out to me that passage, right? And, and it, it's actually very important. So, so once you've deconstructed value, which actually already took place in modernity, it's not a postmodern deconstruction. Postmodernity is just kind of amplifying it. You know, it goes from from Hume all the way to neo-Darwinism, all the way to August Comte, to, through positivism, through through existentialism, and, and through postmodernism. There's a there's a thread there that's a very clear. There's another modernity that's an alternative modernity. That's a different conversation. But that modernity has deconstructed value. Now that's going to now come home to roost, right? That gun in the first act is going to be fired in the third act, and it's going to be fired at the mayor, right? Because we've deconstructed value, right? And, you know, there weren't school shootings 50 years ago, right? Now, when you deconstruct value, the gun is going to be fired in the third act, one way or the other. So the reconstruction of value, what, what we call at the Center for Integral Wisdom, the reconstructive project, right, is the overwhelming moral imperative of our time. And, you know, Ken Wilber has done a, a gorgeous job in creating an integral framework, which is one of, one of the critical scaffoldings for that conversation, you know, and Ken's deployed Habermas, you know, in, in a brilliant way and, and, and kind of played with complexity theory and chaos theory, and he's, he's done a great job. And that's, that's a key piece of the story. We're now going, you know, the next step and we're saying, okay, let's articulate now more like, you know, existentialism, romanticism, right? An entire new field of value. Let's, let's, let's take as our scaffolding among other meta theories, 
but critically, right, you know, integral distinctions, which are critical and brilliant and beautiful, right? And I'm, you know, you know, always in, in debt to that gorgeous work, right, that Ken did. But what we now need to do is create an in, in intellectual, spiritual, you know, existential, moral, political, economic movement, right, that generates a new field of value. That's the reconstruction of value. And that's that's the conversation we're deeply in right now. And that's that's the literally the burning. Right? This is not about, you know, and this is why sometimes it's frustrating, right? Right. In other words, sometimes you look at you know certain communities and you're saying, like, wow, like what's going on here? Like the house is burning. Right. And, and we've got to actually, and everyone should give their unique contribution, but we've got to actually pour all of our energy and all of our love and all of our eros into actually doing what needs to be done at this moment in time, because actually the house is on fire and that's real. And so we've got to be on fire, right? In the best and the most beautiful way. Uh, when you um, look forward or feel forward to the middle of the 21st century, given that the house is on fire right now, how does it look to you? What, what do you think we can change? What do you think is inevitable at this point? What's your sense of the next couple of decades on this planet? You know, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, you know, any attempts to be Nostradamus in any form, you know, always, um, you know, wind up leaving people quite embarrassed, right? So it's generally, generally not a good idea. So I don't want to, you know, fall into that kind of, you know, you know, the Hebrews, you know, of Nostradamus. So, so, you know, on the one hand, you know, I've got no fucking clue, right? So that's, you know, that's, that's the best answer to that question. You know, having said that, right, the question is, very simply, will the vectors that are in play now continue, exponentialize and degrade, right? In which case we're going to face catastrophic risk on, you know, multiple levels, right? And, you know, within X amount of time, unclear, you know, Toby Ord in his book, Existential Risk, did the math, you know, he kind of crunched the hard numbers, you know, and he came up with, you know, a bunch of, you know, you know, results. His result was in the next hundred years, one in six, you know, we could face existential risk. One in six is a very, very high number, right? You know, and over the next several hundred years, it was more like 50-50, right? You know, you know, Boston crunched other numbers and had, you know, slightly different, right? So there's, the question is how you crunch those numbers. That's a good question. But there's a, there's a pretty universal consensus that the danger is very, very real, right? And so we have to actually understand, and, and this is where it gets very, you know, we got to get very soft and very open and, 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 you know, we've got to be filled with fire and filled with humility and filled with audacity at the same time. We have to understand, you know, layman, there's, how do we say it? There's, there's a covenant between the generations, right? In other words, the past, the past, right? Labors for generations and they, they've passed the baton to us. And so all of their successes and all of that meaning depends on us. And at the same time, the future has no voice other than us. Right. And as the, we are the voice of the future. So if we basically drop the ball in this moment, right, you know, the past actually collapses in some way and the future remains unborn. I mean, it's a, it's a shocking idea. Right. But, but the notion of a covenant between generations doesn't make sense, you know, my friend, without first principles and first values. Right. In other words, without a sense of first principles, and, and we can barely be responsible for someone who's across the ocean. But when you actually right make the the spatial distance not only geographic but temporal, right? 
So we've got to actually move out of our, you know, our myopic temporality, right? And actually feel into the future and feel the voice of the future, right? And the baby's whispering the trillions of lives unlived, the love is unloved, the creativity undone, the moral acts undone, the nobility, right? Unborn, which literally depends on us, right? How can you not, right, be on fire with both the, the, the trepidation, but also with the enormous privilege, enormous, insane privilege to be able to have a seat at the table of history, right? And, and pour your life into, into engaging. And this is one of the places where, you know, I think our friends, you know, who are post-doomers, there's a whole post-doomer community are making a, a tragic mistake, you know, and they can cite overshoot, you know, you know, that book as much as they want, but, but actually we can't be looking down. Right. In other words, the very energy of evolution, right, that moved us from single cell to multi-celled organisms lives in us. And so we need to actually be aware of that evolution alive in us and we need to claim it. And we need to be like madly humble and madly audacious. Right. And we need to be on fire. Right? We need to be on fire. Right. We, we need to step in and kind of and it's so often layman that it just kind of breaks your heart when you see, wow, people are just doing business as usual you know, kind of commodifying spirit, selling it, you know, competing. Whoa, let's stop friends, right? Let's, let's find each other, right? Let's write. In other words, and this is our moment, right? This next 10 years, 20 years, there's are so important like that. A call to madness from Mark Gaffney. <laughs> <laughs> to, to mad love and mad creativity, right? And the madness that Rumi talked about, right? In other words, you know, where you realize that the only sanity is madness and in the best and most beautiful sense of the word. I'm, you know, while you're saying these things, I'm thinking about first principles and first values. And it seems to me there's a couple of different strategies to go about getting some agreement around these things in the world, right? It seems like some people would advocate that we sort of sell each other a shared advanced narrative of some kind, that by agreeing on that, we would sort of be plugged into a shared story that evokes these values. Some people would say, maybe we don't need a shared story, but if we could just acknowledge and agree upon what these principles and what these values are, then we would all be acknowledging the same toolkit and we would have that in common. And other people might say that all of that stuff is too too cognitive, too verbal. And what we really need to do is engage in certain kinds of shared practices that produce these um, agreements about value and clarity about principles as a kind of side effect of what we're doing together. What do you think about those three? Where do you lean there? Or is it something else entirely? This is a very, that's a very big conversation, right? And as we said before, the value conversation is a separate conversation. And my inclination is, you know, if you're up for it, maybe we'll do a separate conversation just on value, right? Because we need to, we need to unpack. And, and it's such a critical conversation that we can't afford to get it wrong. So what I just would say kind of, you know, and, and I hope that together with Zach, we'll, we'll actually put out a paper on this, you know, fairly shortly, right? Where we're going to try and unpack this, you know, in, in some, some at least initial depth and then, you know, and then take it the next step. But let's just say for now, for now, that four points. One is we need first values, first principles and first values that are inherent to cosmos. That's one. Two, 
those first principles and first values need to be coupled with a story of value. It's very, very, very important, right? In other words, a Habermasian attempt by any other name to articulate first principles by itself won't work. I'll just give you, a, just, I'll give you just a simple example, perhaps, maybe two examples. So let's say we do a broadcast on the eight ethical principles that demand that we engage slavery in Burma, right? And we ask people for donations, no response. Then we put the picture of a nine-year-old girl and we tell her story, right? And we say, she's a slave in Burma, huge outpouring. Why? Or I'll give you just a second kind of image, right? You know, and I know this might not be true for you, layman, but for other people, it's probably true, right? It's late night, you're exhausted, you got to relax, you've permitted yourself to turn Netflix on, and you got a choice. There's this great movie or this really informative documentary, okay? Just feeling in your body, informative documentary, okay, great movie. <gasps> Right? So in other words, you've got an embodied sense of those two. And, and the reason I turn to an embodied sense is we need a yoga, not just a dharma here, right? And so a story does something because a story is not just a social construction of reality, right? You know, the way the Hebrew lineage master said it, they said, God loves stories. But what they meant by that was, is that story is in, in, in Zach's and Maya's language, right? Story, is, story itself is a first principle and first value, right? That's a big idea, right? And I've got, to, I've got to talk about that a lot, but that actually there's a narrative arc to cosmos, right? That story itself is part of the structure of reality and therefore it organizes reality. So it's not enough to have first principles and first values and it's not enough to have a story, right? So that's, I think that's, you need a story of value, inherent value, A, that elicits, evokes allurement and will, and then you need, right? First principles and first values, which your story is rooted in, that evokes will and allurement. You put those two together, you actually have a possibility of changing the vector of cosmos. That's a really, really, really big deal. That's, that's like, oh my God, that's, that's madly exciting, right? In that best sense of the word mad. And again, neither will work by themselves and they have to be intrinsic. So I'll just give you a, let me, let's see what I have here. I'm looking here. Um, here. Here's the Avenue book I was looking at today, Global Revolt, written by a very nice young man. Um, you know, I assume he's a nice young man. I'm Nadav Ayal, who's about 40, Israeli, um, you know, I'm columnist, friend of Harari's. Um, Clinton writes a little blurb on it. And, you know, and, and he's kind of talking about globalism and the underlying liberal values, right? But if you read the book and, you know, one of my, you know, partners in the think tank sent it to me and said, Mark, take a look. So I took a look. Because uh, someone that I I, I, I I trust, you know, if you don't have a book highly recommended, you can't even afford to look at it these days, right? So, so I took a look at, it, look at it quite seriously. And it's actually, a, it was a heart-rending book. He didn't intend it to be heart-rending in that way. But actually, Nadav is desperately searching for value. He wants there to be a theory of value that works. And again, Nadav is a, a very intelligent reporter like Yuval, who's got a series of great lectures he gave at Hebrew University and he, he put them together and he's a great lecturer and he's provocative and entertaining and, and insightful. But Yuval's not, he's not a, you know, and he, and he does good Vipassana every day, but he's not, he's not a good thinker with all due respect and love, right? And love to have Yuval and Yitzchak over for dinner, but he's not thinking he's actually parroting the postmodern consensus, which means he's an important source, not for his thought, but for his uncontaminated reflection what the postmodern consensus is. So Nadav is the same way. So Nadav says in a passing sentence, he says, 
with this kind of sigh. He says, but we all know that there, there can't be a, there can't, there, there are no preordained eternal values that we share. So therefore we're making them up. So that's the only realm we can operate in. I mean, it, it's very shocking in my heart, just right. And, and Nadav is expressing what he heard from his professors at Hebrew University who were reading, right? In other words, that's why it's important. It's an uncontaminated expression of where the kind of postmodern mind is without even knowing the word postmodern. It's just a given. So that's what we that's the that's the hit on the Death Star. That's right. That's where we need to, that's where we need to play. And that's where we're putting an enormous amount of energy and time. And again, if you're up for it, you know, I'd be delighted um, perhaps together with Zach, right? To kind of have that that conversation. It's a really, really important conversation. I just usually appreciate you raising it. Yeah, that would be great to do a three-way conversation around value because you know that position you just um clarified someone expressing you know there's a strange performative contradiction i think nietzsche was already pointing this out you know 200 years ago which is to say there's we all understand there's no value <laughs> is a is an embodiment of the value of truth and the importance of communicating truth so that person can't be outside of the value discussion there's right. no position outside of it there's, there's only there's always a performative contradiction at play, and postmodernity itself is one big performative contradiction. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson, who, who's, you know, and I, I haven't tracked him, but I listened to about maybe 90 minutes of him over the last couple of years. Someone sent me a nice, so I listened just to get a sense of it. And it was, it was a good, it was a good rant. I mean, rant in the best sense of the word. Um, but he just misunderstood postmodernity. He understood its weaknesses, didn't understand its strengths. Right? And postmodernity is not all wrong. Postmodernity actually is an evolution of value and as it deconstructs value, right? And it at the very heart of it is a performative contradiction. But yeah, but let's you and I or with Zach, let's have a, you know, a deep conversation around value. And perhaps when we actually come out with that document, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll that'll be a good time to do that. That'd sure, be great. Yeah. Now, let's come back around to the notion of intimacy that we discussed at the beginning. Please. Because, um, Please. Uh, it, it, you have a complex formulation of what intimacy consists of, and I think probably a lot of people are not immediately clear on how the notion of human intimacy relates to the possibility of global intimacy, whether it's thriving or disordered. Well, so let, let's, let's just make it really, really simple, right? In other words, we said intimacy, and, and again, the, what we're always interested in, you know, in our work at the center, right, is what we call second simplicity. And I gave with um, my friend, um, colleague, you know, Zach's friend and colleague, um, um, Clint Fuse, we gave a course, uh, I don't know, a bunch of years ago called Second Simplicity. It was a mini course. Um, I think it must have been in 2012 or something like that, um, back when we were all young, right? And, you know, what I mean by second simplicity is, right, the simplicity that comes after complexity, right, where you can actually formulate something clearly Right, it, it embraces an enormous amount of complexity, and you can actually state it clearly. So the intimacy formula is a form of second simplicity, right? And so let me just state it again, and that also is its completely own dialogue. And we've actually articulated fifty tenets of intimacy, different conversation, right? But but let's just look at it now for a second, right? So intimacy equals shared identity. Okay, so here we are, Layman and Mark. Okay, so we're both humans. We both have a passionate right interest in making the world better right we have otherness 
right? Now there's Lehman, there's Mark. We're not in fusion, but it's relative otherness. We realize that we're, we're part of a share, there's, right? And so therefore, and we, we recognize each other, right? I've never met you before, right? We've, you know, passed by each other, you know, inadvertently here and there, right? And then, and, and hopefully in this first real meeting, we have for the first time a mutual light of pathos. We can actually feel each other for the first time, right? And, and we have a shared value. We wouldn't be able to have this conversation. And we actually have a shared purpose, right? So, so we've actually created a dimension of human intimacy here, right? When there's actually a dimension of shared identity between us, we're not getting married, right? We're not, right? We're not, right? That's not, that's not what intimacy means. Intimacy means there's a dimension of shared identity with these four mutualities. And then these mutualities, each one of them can dial up and dial down, right? Depending on the, the form of intimacy. So intimacy, and let me say it different. Let's just take one piece of it, mutuality of pathos, which is one of the four mutualities. So let's just double click on that for a second because it's an easy way in. So from that sense, from the second, from the second, you know, multiplication sign, right, in the equation, right, mutuality of pathos. So intimacy would mean I feel you, and you feel me. The second loop of intimacy would mean I feel you, feeling me. Right, and you feel me, feeling you. Right, and then a third loop of intimacy would be I feel you. Feeling me, feeling you. It's very beautiful, right? So each one of the four mutualities, and, and in some sense, the place I most love to be is in these places. I'm speaking kind of and you know articulating meta theories these days because I think there's an overwhelming moral imperative to do so. But what I'd really like to do is be in nature and meditate and pray, right? In other words, and, and talk about intimacy, right? But at this moment in time, right? House is burning. So we need to articulate meta theories, but not as in some geeky, weird way, but in a way that we're filled with mad love. We're filled with outrageous love and outrageous love generates our meta theories. So, so this sense of intimacy means, wow, we really recognize each other. We can really feel it, right? We can really feel each other. We, we can actually feel the shared value and we can create shared purpose from that. It's very beautiful. I mean, it's very beautiful. And and that's how intimacy works paradoxically all the way down and all the way up the evolutionary chain. And then Lehman, for the first time, I can locate myself in cosmos. Now, my intimacy is not dissociated or ruptured from cosmos. My intimacy is an expression of the intimate universe. And I actually begin to understand evolution as the evolution of intimacies. Wow. But evolution actually becomes the progressive deepening of intimacy. And I had a, a beautiful conversation, had a whole bunch of them, but back in 2014, Barbara suggested I go visit Irvin Laszlo. So we sat in Tuscany and we've done it again, you know, um, a couple of years back. And, and we talked about evolution. So, you know, the classical way to describe evolution is the evolution from simplicity to complexity. But of course, who wants more complexity, really? Let's make your life more complex, right? In other words, what we mean by complexity is not quite that. And it's we use words in meta theory and in science euphemistically inappropriately, right? And we wanna use not euphemism, but metaphor. Euphemism is a form of lying. Metaphor is a form of evoking a reality that we can't fully formulate in a short, you know, in a short phrase. So. Complexity is actually describing, right, a radical, right, deepening 
of nodes of interconnectivity. But interconnectivity by itself is an exterior, right? The interior of interconnectivity is intimacy, right? So more complexity is actually more intimacy, that we actually can understand evolution as the progressive deepening of intimacies. Wow. And then I realized, okay, who am I? I'm a unique self. What does that mean? That's a term, you know, I, I tried to create to describe something, but, but you know, we're, we're going to be putting out, you know, with God's help, an, a new version of the unique self book because so much has changed in the last nine years. But so I'm a unique configuration of intimacy, consciousness, and desire. Oh, so there's a quality of intimacy that's laymanness that meets a quality of intimacy named Markness. Let's say that we understand divinity, right? The God you don't believe in doesn't exist. So let's say we understand divinity as the infinity of intimacy, right? And we are unique qualities of intimacy. And then between us, there's a unique quality of intimacy. So between laymanness and Markness in the space in between, there's a new quality of intimacy that never existed before. So in that sense, if I could be an interior scientist from let's say the Hebrew mystical tradition with your permission for a moment. So if laymanness comes together with markness, not from an egoic place, not from a posturing place, not from a commodification place, but we actually wanna meet. And there's this quality, new quality of intimacy between us and God is the infinity of intimacy. then we've created a new God. Wow. And that's how the capitalists understand it. The capitalists actually understand that when when, when this new space between the cherubs as or the cherubs above the ark and the temple and you know and, and the holy of holies the raiders of the lost ark is a cultural allusion to that right the space in between is when there's a new quality of intimacy so wow and, and then when i meet layman i'm like wow he's a unique quality of intimacy with a unique perspective and and so i get to be excited about you wow every single question he asked was like crazy intelligent his formulations were all like right on the money like one of the best interviews I've ever seen, right? Super well-informed and relaxed and calm and, and delightful. So I get to be excited about you, right? Now we're in a world where we're like, well, why would I be excited about you? That must be manipulative. No, I get to be excited about you. I get to be delighted. And now we're talking about a world we can live in, right? Like that. There's a very um, interesting relationship between the way people perceive manipulation and the experience of excitement like it kind of you know seduction shades back and forth between these things i i think it's absolutely fascinating because it's so difficult for a lot of people to tease those things apart but uh maybe we'll get to things like that and, another and, kind of conversation. and that's, a, that's a, by the way that's a great conversation because right you know in the in in mysticism they distinguish between holy seduction and unholy seduction, right? So unholy seduction is when you seduce someone to break their appropriate boundary for the sake of your greed. However you do that is inappropriate. It's a, it's a violation of boundaries and we all know how important boundaries are, right? When, when mystics talk about what they call petty, which is the Hebrew word for seduction, Right? And they're not talking about sexual seduction. We've kind of, we've, we've, we've exiled seduction to sexuality. Seduction is a much broader category as you were implying. But what the holy seduction means when we invite ourselves or someone, right, to transcend the boundary of their contraction for the sake of their own highest expression, their own highest need. Right? And of course, 
those distinctions always need to be made, right? So beautiful, thank you. So maybe one final question in this planetary politics. Yes, uh, sir. Angle here, and that's the role of the nation state because uh, there, there's different ways of thinking about what social holons are. You know, it seems pretty obvious that a family or a tribe or a community, these make sense to us. But when it comes to the nation state, it's very ambiguous. Is this an actual legitimate natural chunk of human self-organization or is it a kind of interference between the levels, right? Can we get to planetary much better if we overcame countries and just went at it as cities or as geo-ethnographic regions? What's your take on, on where the nation state is situated? Is it a helper or is it a hindrance? A great, it's a great question. I'm, I'm a big fan of the nation state. A Yoram Chazoni at the Shalem Institute in Israel wrote a great book um, on the nation state. You know, and, and let's just talk about just the classical relationship which Cook talks about. Um, Abraham Cook in a passage in a book called Lights of Holiness, where he talks about what he calls the fourfold song. Right? There's the one who sings the soul of the the song of the individual. By the individual, he means you and your family. There's one who sings the song of the nation. There's one who sings the song of the world, and there's one who sings the song of the cosmos, right? And so that's, it's a beautiful passage in Lights of Holiness. Uh, we could actually study it together at some point, where he's actually articulating Cook, Abraham Cook, who dies in 1938, and one of the most important, you know, kind of philosopher mystics, evolutionary mystics, talks extensively about evolution, right? And, and he's talking essentially about what we would call egocentric, but I wouldn't call it egocentric consciousness. I would call it egocentric intimacy, right? Right? Ethnocentric intimacy, world-centric intimacy, right, and cosmocentric intimacy. And by intimacy, we now mean where there's a felt sense, right, of shared identity, right, and our four mutualities, right, with that circle, right, this expanding sense of, of, of intimacy. Now, if you don't have a kind of nation state which coalesces around a shared sense of value and mutualities of recognition, right, then you don't actually have that experience of ethnocentric intimacy, which is a core human need, number one. But number two, from a real politic perspective, right, the ability to have strong nation states that are democracies, that are bound together by a universal grammar of value, right, is actually the bulwark against global governance in its shadow forms, right? It allows for a kind of a confederation on right, major issues, it disperses power, right, but creates balances of power. And maybe the most important idea of the United States Constitution, which is genius beyond imagination, is checks and balances. Checks and balances is unbelievably important. We've never seen, you know, as Lewis points out in a number of books, we've never seen people who have stepped out of a, you know, what we're calling a grammar of value, Lewis calls the Tao, right? We've never seen people who have stepped out of the Tao, who have had access to power, in history and used it benevolently. It's never happened, right? So checks and balances in the world stage are critical, right? So what a nation state allows for, and this is a short answer, this is a two hour conversation, but the short answer is it allows us to address the ethnocentric need of the human being, which is by the way, why people root for their sports teams, right? I, I happened to be in Germany um, back in 2010. I think I was in a tour with uh, Diane um, and we were there when Germany was in the World Cup, right? And, you know, Germany has not been, for very good reasons, allowed to express national sentiment since World War II. 
And like in every corner, people are listening to the game because here's this way of being German, right? And being excited about Germany. And it was, you know, and I'm I, I'm the child of Holocaust survivors, right? So I don't, I don't take this as lightly, but you kind of felt like, wow, this is a new generation. And they're, they're expressing, right, this, and when we destroy ethnocentric solidarity and passion and eros, we're bypassing something essential in the developmental spectrum, we're dissociating, right, and we create pathology. So that's on the, the developmental level, but on the geopolitical level, it also creates a checks and balances on the world stage. That's a, a short take on that. Yay. Okay. This has been great. I think we're coming to the end now. Uh, and there's so many uh, openings and tangent pathways for us to have future conversations, which I, I think are wonderful. Uh, in particular, I mean, we talked a little bit beforehand about maybe doing something around meta theory. Yes. Uh, specifically, uh, I think this idea of doing a conversation with you and me and Zach around value specifically would be fantastic. And we'll, really we'll do when that paper's ready, we'll do that. With absolutely yeah when you guys are ready and i i think the possibility of you and i sitting down and have having a discussion that's specifically around i think you know roles for spiritual teachers and communities and i think a lot about perception because there's a really right there's obviously an issue with how a lot of people perceive you for you know <laughs> and there's different explanations about how that perception goes down and it's not something that can quickly be gotten into but i think it touches on a whole range of things, which is like uh, how teachers transform, how we trust each other, how we tell stories about each other in community, things like that. If you're interested in having a discussion around that, I'd be, um, that would I'd be, be fantastic. I'd be delighted to have that conversation. It's a great conversation. I actually heard a rumor that I was a bit controversial. I was so surprised, but, <laughs> but you know, and, and you got to laugh about serious things, but you know, I'd, I'd be delighted to have that conversation. It's actually an important conversation and, and there's a lot of depth and a lot of love in it and a lot of nuance. And so, you know, anytime I'm, I'm up for that anytime with delight. Well, fantastic. Thanks for talking with me tonight, Mark. Thank you, Layman. It was a pleasure. You were wonderful. <laughs>